uh, real quick, we are moving in our sermon series, Minor Prophets. We are on our second to last one. We're down to Zechariah. We have made it through, spending a week at a time at each Minor Prophet book. And now we are to Zechariah. Zechariah has 14 chapters. This is a loaded book. It reminds me of, Mike, you remember this from, what was it? Was it Tuesday night or Thursday night? You went over to Coach Nevels. Coach Nevels will treat the seniors to a meal. And when he says he'll have a meal, he means he will have a meal. This was a four-course meal, but it's not four courses like you think of an appetizer and then a dessert. This is four main course meals. And so he starts off with pulled pork. And we've got five seniors, and they're going, they're getting plates full of this pulled pork, and it's fantastic. And, and Mama Neville's brings over the, the baked beans and the mac and cheese, and they're loaded up. And then comes time for the second course, which is hot dogs, the third course, which is steak, and then the fourth course, which is chicken. And he looks at me, he's like, man, they didn't eat too much chicken. Yeah, like, Coach, you filled them up on pulled pork. And it goes on and on through the list. And that's what it's going to be like today. You're going to go through this book and God has a word. In, and we have so many different uh, places where we are spiritually in the room. And yet God has something for you. And so while the pace will be quick this morning, my challenge to you, and it's what I challenged Donovan earlier, get one thing. Ask God to open up your eyes, open up your hearts to see one thing that God has for you this morning. And then apply that to your life for the rest of your life. One thing, so, so don't try uh, to take in everything, but ask God for one thing and watch how he moves and see what he has for you today. This is a powerful book, as is every book of the Bible. It's going to be a little bit more challenging, but let's see what God has in store for us, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Prepare our hearts for worship through hearing from you. Lord, we ask that your spirit moves. We ask that you change us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. We see this is, is coming right after the book of Haggai, which we covered last week. Haggai is preparing the people to build, to rebuild the temple. Right? He is working to have the people work. Here we see Zechariah as making sure when the people have the temple built, they're ready to worship in that temple. Haggai is focused on the work of the people. Zechariah is focused on the worship of the people. And you see right off the bat, there's a call to return to God. In, in chapter 1, verse 1, you see three names, and these names wouldn't mean much to us because we don't understand the, the meaning in Hebrew for these. But you have Zechariah, Barakiah, and Ido. I don't know too many guys with the name Ido, I-D-D-O. But the reason why it's here is it means something. Zechariah means that the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers, okay? Bechariah means that the Lord blesses, and Ido means in time. And so right off the bat, Zechariah is saying, hey, here's a central theme to this book. The Lord remembers and blesses at his set time. In time, the Lord remembers and blesses. And you have to remember, the people here are returning to the promised land. And the temple, while the foundations have been laid, it's been years since any work has been done. And now they're looking at what has not been accomplished and they're saying, we might as well give up. We might as well have stayed in this foreign land. It's not worth coming back. Nothing's happening. And what Zechariah says is, hey, hold on. The Lord knows who those who are His. He remembers. <coughs> 
And at the right time, blessings are coming. And you can take that to the grave. The grave doesn't keep you from God. At the right time, the Lord remembers and blesses. So we dig in, we get to verse 3. Therefore, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And you're like, well, he says the Lord of hosts quite a bit. And, and what is happening here is Zechariah is making sure the people understand who is speaking here. This is God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, the God of creation, who's over the angels and all of his creation. This is the Lord of host who is speaking and he's saying return to me and I will return to you and I don't know maybe some of you in the room or listening online are far from God right now and you're wondering is there an invitation yes God is calling you back to himself and the awesome promise is when you return to God God returns to you and then we see in verse 4 do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out thus says the Lord of hosts return to me from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So evil ways and evil schemes, it's an evil way of thinking. You're bent on things going wrong. Your mind's running after things that are contrary to what God has for you. And then evil deeds are acting on those thoughts. And what the prophet is saying is, hey, turn from all of that and return to God. And then he gives them a warning. Remember, your, remember the generation before you? They didn't listen. And then God drives home this point in verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? Where are they? And the people knew where their fathers were. That's why they were in exile. They are in a foreign land. They didn't listen. And then we keep reading, and another question, and the prophets, do they live forever? And this is a sobering reminder that while God is patient, and calling people and inviting people again and again and again, the invitation does not last forever. The invitation does not last forever. And so now, when you hear the voice of the Lord, respond. And God gives them two bright warnings saying, hey, remember your fathers. They didn't listen and see what happened. Remember the prophets. You don't hear their voices anymore. But now you hear my voice, so respond. And so that is how... The book of Zechariah opens. And then you move on. Uh, you have the first of eight visions in chapter 1. The vision of a horseman, vision of horns and craftsmen, and a man with a measuring line. And, and what you see here in this picture, in this imagery, in these visions, is Zechariah is reminding them that when they return to God, guess what happens? They return to a God and find mercy. He gives them what they do not deserve. They find grace. That is an awesome thing. I can remember at school, and it was always bad, when my parents would get a call home, I'd miss recess at school, right? That was a bad punishment, but I knew that was nothing compared to what was waiting for me at the house when I returned home from the day at school. I'd go home, and I'd get in trouble a second time. But here, when you return home, you find someone already took your punishment. And what you find instead of punishment is grace and mercy. That's how we return to God. There's no fear in returning to God, no matter where you've gone or what you've been doing. God is saying, come back. I'll return to you. You will find mercy and comfort in my presence. And that's what these three visions are relating to. And then you get to Zechariah 3. And we're going to camp out here in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 4 for just a little bit. 
I want to read this, and I want to see this. I want you to see this picture, this vision, fourth vision. Vision of Joshua, the high priest. Now, this is not Joshua uh, that fought the battle at Jericho, the guy that led after Moses. This is a Joshua you've never heard of. All right? This is just a high priest, and this is what we read. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Now, I want to stop right there because that introduces us into the three characters of the vision. You have Satan and then the angel of the Lord, which is representing Christ. And then you have Joshua, the high priest. And so you have these three having a dialogue. And what does Satan do? He accuses Joshua. Hey, God, how is he before you? He's filthy. He's accusing him before God. And this is what Satan does today. And we see this all throughout Scripture. In Revelation 12.10 it says, Because the accuser of our brothers has been thrown out, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Day and night. This is what Satan does. And now here's the crazy part. Satan doesn't have to lie about you or me. He's not lying about Joshua. He is filthy. His clothes are ruined. He's not ready to serve God. And yet God doesn't let Satan give Joshua his identity. He rebukes Satan. Now this is very, very important because this is a gospel picture. You and I before God are filthy. And God rescues us. So let's see what happens. Verse 4. Angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I love that picture. God reaches down to Joshua the high priest and says, I've got this. And takes away his sin. And then we keep reading. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right to have access among those who are standing here. I love that. Salvation is unconditional, and serving is, hey, follow me. You're ready to serve now. You weren't, but now you are. I made you ready. And then you, you skip on down to verse 9. For behold... On the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. When do you think that day was? That's the day when Christ goes to the cross. And we see this again and again in Scripture. Romans 5, 6 says this, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Right? Christ died for you and for me. We could be standing before God and Satan saying, hey, this, this guy, this lady, they, they shouldn't be standing before you. You should see how she talks. You should see what she thinks. You should hear how he treats people. You should see his thoughts, the pride of his life, his selfishness, his greed, his lust, how he uses people. And Satan could go on and on and on. And God says, nope. It's not how I see it. This is why. This right here, we've got to get in our hearts. We've got to wake up. Because I know that there is a battle raging for the world and Satan to define you. 
And God says, nope, that's not how you're defined. So let me keep reading. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, but God shows his love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us since. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. And this is Psalm 51. This is what David says. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Right? It doesn't get much better than that. Or We keep reading in the Bible and again and again the promises come. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. His wounds heal us. His stripes we are healed. The iniquity of us all was laid upon Jesus. When he goes to the cross, he's not dying for his own sin. He's dying for our sin. In one day, God took all of our sin, laid it on Christ so that we might be saved. This is the picture of Zechariah chapter 3. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And yet many times Christians live as guilty people, even though God says not guilty because Christ has paid the price. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a beautiful promise. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Those old garments, filthy garments, gone. And the new has come. I asked uh, the girls what was their favorite scene in Cinderella. One of them said it was the shoe fitting, when the shoe fits. Another one said when they married Prince Charming or whoever the prince is in Cinderella. But one that sticks out to all of us is the transformation Cinderella goes through. She's getting ready for the ball, the party. And yet her wicked stepmom and sisters come and take the necklace off her and rip her dress and take her shoes. She's devastated. She can't go like, looking like that. And then the fairy godmother shows up and makes everything right. New dress, new shoes, a new ride. It's a beautiful picture. It's the stuff of fairy tales. Here's the awesome reality. In Christ, that's who we are. We're ready for the feast, the celebration, when Jesus returns. God sees you as righteous. You cannot be any more perfect than what Jesus has made you. He takes our sin, going to the cross, he gives us his righteousness. So don't ever let Satan accuse you and keep you from serving God. Yeah, we're filthy, we've sinned, we've messed up, and Christ paid for it. So now, from head to toe, before God, we are righteous. I'll, I'll leave you with this illustration. Yesterday, um, Ava somehow has picked up skateboarding. Right? I tried skateboarding one time. Mimi, at your house, I stepped on it in the garage. I thought, oh, it's not too bad. You know, you start with the kick, and then I put all my weight on it, and that was a bad idea. Skateboard goes down the driveway. My elbow goes to the garage floor, and I'm thinking, I just broke my elbow. Uh, I can't tell Julianne this, and so I try to shake it off. But yesterday, I had the bright idea. You know what? I can do this. I'm not going to try standing on this skateboard. I'm going to lay down on this skateboard. I'm going to go down this hill. So it's, it's, not a, it's not a steep hill, but with my weight going down, you can pick up some speed. So I lay down on my back. My shorts catch the first time, so I have to roll my shorts up. And I'm thinking, please don't let anybody have a cell phone out taking a picture of this. I'm racing my brother Sam. We're flying down this hill. Now here's the problem. I had just gotten a shower. I came out. I don't have my socks and shoes on. How are you supposed to stop a skateboard going down a hill with your hands and feet? <laughs> so... 
Started going down, started to lose control, got a little wobbly, put my hands down. Burn my right hand, burn my left hand. I'm thinking, which one's got to go? Which one's got to go? Put my feet down. You can see the smoke coming off the concrete, right? I finally come to a stop. I look at the bottom of my feet. They're black from the blacktop, right? I get up. Dad goes, that was a bright idea, wasn't it? Thanks, Dad, for your encouragement. I go inside. I try to wash it off. Now, here's the thing. When, when I washed my feet off, I couldn't get it off. Hot water, nothing. Soap, nothing. I keep scrubbing, and the stain was too deep, right? I left a little flesh out there on the blacktop. I couldn't wash this stuff off myself. A lot of us are trying to do that with our sins spiritually. You can't clean yourself up. Why would you try? You don't have to. That's what Jesus paid for. And it goes deep. And in Christ, you get a new heart. You get a new start. So I want you to rest in that. This is a picture of grace. Zechariah chapter 3. And I want you to spend some time being here because here's the deal. You will be accused for the rest of your life. One of the things that I'm challenged to do with my daughters is not let the world define them. Their sin, their looks, won't define who they are. I got a little upset. We had a, a teacher, we were in a side conversation, um, and was talking about paddling. If we brought paddling back in school, we could curb behavior, right? And I just said, you know what? I don't think Ava would do anything to get paddled. And then we had a, a side comment, don't ever say ever, never. And I thought, you know what? I ought to take this teacher out. Don't talk about my daughter like that. She has no idea who she's talking about. But then I thought, you know what? Even if she messes up, let's say she blows it, does something really dumb. Will that define her? Nope. Her identity is in Christ. And that thing is sealed. So I look at my daughters and then look at that. And then I think, you know what? How many times does that happen to myself? How many times does that happen to you? Does your performance define you? What you do define you, or does Christ define you? Here's the awesome beauty of this passage. God's already defined you in Christ, and it's perfect. So rest there. But Zechariah doesn't end there. We get to chapter 4. You have a vision of a golden lampstand. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have a golden lampstand. This is what it means. This golden lampstand in chapter 4 symbolizes God's people. The oil produced by the olive tree supplied by the suspended bowl Delivered through the 49 channels, the 49 pipes, represents the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering God's people to light the nations, directing them to God. That's what the image uh, was portraying. Now, why is that important? Look at Zechariah 4.6. This is one of those verses. I have two verses hanging up in my office at school. This is one of them. This is a great reminder because if not, you're going to wear yourself out trying to perform what God has called you to do. Right? We see that we're rescued in chapter 3. Here, we see how we're ready to get to work in chapter 4. And this is how. This is, this is very, very important if you're going to live a life that brings glory to God. There is no other way. This is how it's done. Verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. By my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And I think a lot of times people get confused on how they get things done. You want to glorify God? It's not by trying harder. It's not by being innovative and creative, although those aren't bad in and of themselves. 
You want to glorify God, you want to change a city, it's done by the Spirit of God. Zerubbabel had a huge task. Build this temple. He can't do it on his own. But you want to know what happens? A lot of people see what Zerubbabel did, and like, man, if I just had his work ethic, I was just, if I was smart enough to engineer that building. But that's not how Zerubbabel got it done. How did he get it done? It wasn't his brain power. It wasn't his strength. It wasn't in the might of his workforce. It was in the spirit of his God. This is very important for us. The next verse, in verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? I don't know about you, but mountains are pretty big. And if a mountain is in your way, that's an obstacle. And yet, look at what God says. Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. I love that picture. There's a huge obstacle in front of Zerubbabel, and he can't move it. Can't go around it. What does God do? Levels it. Makes it a plain. All of you will have obstacles in your life that keep you from glorifying God. You each have your own mountain in front of you that will keep you from glorifying God. And you'll be tempted to use your own resources and your own strength to level that thing. And what you will find is the mountain is too big. It's a mountain that isn't leveled by your strength or your might. It's leveled by the Spirit of your God. So the way we walk forward is through the power of the Spirit. And I just want you to see this real quick from here. All throughout the Bible, you see when God moves, things happen. David, a lot of times we see David, like, man, he was pretty crafty with a slingshot. He's pretty bad news. You know how he defeated Goliath? It wasn't his markmanship. It was God. Do you remember how Goliath says, hey, I come to you and this and this and this. He's like a nine-time champion. No one's able to touch him on the battlefield. And David's response is, well, I come to you in the name of my Lord. David's fearless because he knows the Spirit of God is with him. The Spirit of God gives him victory. And then you, you might remember the story of Samson, the strongest dude in the Old Testament, right? Whooping people with a, a donkey's jawbone. Yeah, he's a bad dude. Samson. It says in Judges 16.20, this is one of the most terrifying verses in the Old Testament. It says, and she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he's messing around with Delilah, thinking, ah, I can get out of this. I can do whatever I want, live however I want. I'll be fine because my strength is my strength. That's what he thought. And up until this point, he was able to get out of a lot of the stuff. But he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Terrifying passage. Samson's strength was in the spirit of his God, not his own self. And a lot of times we have that temptation like Samson. I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, and I'll be okay because I've been okay before. We didn't realize that our strength comes from God. If you want to make a difference in your life with the years God has given you, it will be because you're empowered by the spirit of God. I love how David, after he messed up, he blew it. He blew it big time. And yet he pleads with God, do not take your spirit from me. Create in me a clean heart. Man, that's our plea. Fill us with your spirit and guide us. Now, real quick, everyone who knows Jesus, who has been rescued, who has been plucked from the fire, as we see in Zechariah 3, everyone who has been saved has the spirit of God. In Romans 8, verse 9, it says, You, however, not of the flesh, but in the spirit. 
if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, if you have been rescued from your sin, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you have His Spirit. And His Spirit levels mountains and makes them plains. And then we keep reading, and I think this is interesting. If you, if you go on down to verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. You see, they were talking trash to Zerubbabel. Hey, man, you're starting this temple. Yeah, we tried that 17 years ago. Didn't work real well. It's still sitting in ruins. And now, every time they would pass this foundation of the temple, they're like, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. We started something we couldn't finish. And they started to despise the foundation. And what Zechariah is saying is, hey, those who despise small things, just wait. You're going to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. This thing's getting done. So you can use this on an individual level. You can use this as a church. I remember the days when I met with my family at Holmes High School. I had a McDonald's sweet tea, a Bible story that would go 10 minutes, and we made it five. Living at mom and dad's house wondering, don't know if we should have done this. Walking by the foundation wondering and despising the small things. Then you guys remember our trip to Ashland Avenue. One o'clock in the afternoon, not the best time to have a service, especially during the bingo season. Wondering and despising the small things. Then we move here, things are going great, then COVID hits. We're looking around, our momentum is shot, despising the small things. What does God say to that? Verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. So it isn't how it's going to be. It's not how it's going to end. I love this next part. And he shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Jesus is going to come back and make everything right. In the meantime, be faithful to what he has called us. What started small, God will complete. You can do that on an individual level. Maybe you're fighting sin and you're thinking it's two steps forward and one step back. Or maybe you're thinking it's one step forward and two steps back. You've been fighting and you've been fighting and you've been fighting. And whatever it is, whatever battles you're going through, you're despising the small wins that you get because you see the defeat on a consistent basis. And what God is saying is don't despise the small things. What I started in you, I will complete. Because it's not based on us. It's based on the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God will never, ever be defeated. So don't despise the small days, the small things. Rejoicing is coming. Then we get to chapter 5. This is what the Holy Spirit does, and we're going to fly by these. Chapter 5, there's this vision of a flying scroll, and on it has the sin of the people. Now, I liken it to the, the beach. If you've ever been to the beach and you see the plane, and the plane's carrying this flag, this banner, and it sounds like the plane's going to go down at any time, you look up, and boom, you have this advertisement. Whether it's for insurance or for some place to eat, well, this is, this is the image I get in my head of this. You see the scroll flying over, and what is happening is the Holy Spirit is revealing sin to His people. That's very, very important, right? For you and I to walk with Christ, we need to know what is right and what is wrong. And what happens is the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. As you spend time reading the Bible, what will happen is God will convict you of things that are wrong and things that are right. 
They'll say, hey, you need to stop doing this. Or say, hey, you need to have a conversation with this person. You need to walk this way. You need to be more disciplined in how you sleep. And who knows how this might be, but as you apply the word to your heart, the Holy Spirit will drive in sin and say, hey, this can't be here. And the Bible talks about do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. You'll have this conviction. And then what the Holy Spirit does is he gives you the power to turn. And you see in the next vision, vision of a woman in a basket. I did not put a picture up for this one. Vision of a woman in a basket. She gets out of this basket. Her name's Wickedness. They shut the basket. Like, ah, we don't want that here. And what happens is there's two, two ladies with wings come and take this basket and take it over to Babylon into Shinar. Right? It's a, a wicked place. And what God is saying is, hey, wickedness doesn't belong with the people of God. That's for those who don't know God. But my people, sin will be removed. And it's a beautiful picture of what the Holy Spirit does. It's a picture, another picture of what happened to Joshua the high priest. Your filthy garments? Nope, we're giving you clean clothes. Spotless clothes. That's the picture that you get from the lady in the basket. Then we get to chapter 6. We're moving right along. You have a vision of four chariots. Um, you see this again, the Spirit of God working and moving, convicting us of Sin, the four chariots show God's presence going in and out, moves to the crown and the temple, what God will do for his people, giving hope to his people. And then you get a call for justice and mercy in chapter 7. And I love this picture. It's a, it's a move from fasting to feasting. The, the people are coming, as you see in verse 3, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord, of hosts and prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Right? They're asking, hey, do I have to stop eating here? So I've been doing that for years. Do I have to keep doing this? And so what had happened is what originally started as worship now has become routine. And they're asking, do we got to keep doing this? It's a pain. See, they fasted on the 10th month to remember when the Babylonians had begun to attack Jerusalem. All right. Another month, fourth month, to remember when the city walls were broken through. They fasted on the fifth month here because the temple of Jerusalem was burnt down, and then they fasted again the seventh month because their governor had been assassinated. And so it was a total of five times they would fast, and each time it brought up something that was wrong. And what you see in chapter 8, how eventually God answers this, and, and I love this, like God doesn't give them a short answer. He says, well, why are you fasting? Is it for yourself or is it to pursue me? And obviously it was for themselves. They made a feel better, right? This is what we had to do. And they forgot about God. And God gets to the heart of the matter. But eventually, God gets to how he will answer this. And in chapter 8, we see that he turns his, this fasting into feasting, calling the nations. Many nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts, and there will be gladness, there will be cheerful feasts. That's in verse 19 of chapter 8. God does that. And you're going to have in your life periods where you're fasting, times of mourning, times of sadness, times of when things are going wrong. Understand, God's not finished. And He is able to turn those times into times of rejoicing. Keep following Jesus. That's the word from Zechariah to God's people while they were in exile. Hey, come on home. We know things aren't right. But eventually, yeah, you're right. These fasts, we're not going to do those anymore. So we're all going to be celebrating and feasting in the presence of God. Then he moves on to chapter 9. Chapter 9, you see the king is coming. 
And, and I love this. All the way back here, Jesus actually uses one of the verses from this chapter. He uses the chapter, the king coming on a donkey, riding in on a donkey. And you guys remember that, right? He, he rides into the city of Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and then a week later, he's crucified. And it's going back to this text when Hezekiah was saying, or Zechariah was saying, hey, the king is coming, and this is how you're going to know it. He'll be riding on a donkey, on this colt. We see it's fulfilled in Jesus. And what does this king do? From verse 14 to 17 in chapter 9, it says, The Lord will save his people. The Lord will rescue his people. Now, when you read this text in the Old Testament, I think a lot of us would have the same thing in mind that the people had when Jesus showed up. God's going to rescue us from the Romans. And Jesus would again and again, no, I've come to save you. I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've come to give my life as a ransom. We never knew that victory would be in his death. And that he was rescuing us something from far greater enemy than some Romans. He's rescuing us from our sin, from Satan, and giving us eternal life. That's how big of king we have. There's, a, there's this parable, it's called the parable of the pit, and I thought it was, was funny. Um, and, and I think this is a lot of people today. A lot of people today come in with ideas of, of how you can have a better life, right? How you can have a better life. And so it, it reminds me of this parable of the pit, and it falls in with Zechariah chapter 9, how God's coming to save. Jesus is coming to save people from their sin. That's why he came. All right, so, so just bear with me. Parable of the pit. Man suddenly falls into a deep pit, it's too deep for him to jump out of, and the walls of the pit are impossible to climb out. So he's stuck there. Question is, how is he going to get out of the pit? Right? You're walking along, there's a hole, boom, you're in it, you can't get out. Good news, you got people coming by. A self-righteous person passes by, looks down at the man and says, only bad people fall into pits. You must be really a bad person to fall into a pit like that, and the man's still in a pit. A philosopher passes by and says, you must be... you." You're really not in a pit. You just think you are. The man's still in a pit. Politician passes by and says, I got a new program and I'm proposing it to Congress. Going to eliminate pitfalls just like yours. And the man's still in the pit. County inspector passes by and says, Do you have a permit for that pit? And the man's still in the pit. Pessimist passes by and says, You're never going to get out of a pit like that. And it looks like it's going to start raining. And the man's still in the pit. An optimist passes by and says, so you fell in a pit. Make the most of it. Maybe you could decorate it. And the man's still in the pit. An engineer passes by and says, the pit you are in is 20 feet deep, 15 feet wide, and 25 feet long. And the man's still in the pit. Preacher passes by and says, I want you to notice the three things about the pit. It's a deep pit, it's a dark pit, it's a dirty pit. And the man's still in the pit. Psychologist passes by and says, maybe your mother pushed you into that pit. How does that pit make you feel? And the man's still in the pit. Self-pitying person passes by and says, you think you're in a pit, you ought to see my pit. And the man's still in the pit. But then Jesus sees the man in the pit. He takes him by the hand and lifts him out and extends God's deliverance. So Jesus does. That's what's promised 500 years before Jesus shows up. That's what Jesus tells us he's going to do. That's what he's doing today. And when he returns, we will see it finally and fully. Salvation belongs to our God. Then we get to chapter 10, and chapter 9 all the way through 14 is pushing people to look at Jesus, the coming Messiah. And we see it again and again, chapter after chapter. And in chapter 10, we see that you've got to follow the right shepherd. And I think this is just a, a good warning. The, the people that were leading Israel, 
before they go into exile, these are evil shepherds, right? They were abusing the sheep, misusing their position to take advantage of the sheep, and the people suffered because of it. And it points to a, a central point that if you don't follow the right shepherd, you wind up in the wrong place. Who you follow matters. And I want us to be very, very careful with an election coming up. And listen, there's arguments on both sides of the wall. I'm, I'm not making a political statement. I am saying this. Your Savior isn't in either party. Our Savior is Christ, and that's who we follow. That is the good shepherd. And I want us to see from right here who you follow determines your destination. So hook your wagon to the good shepherd. It was interesting. There was a, a tour of, of the Holy Land. They were going. They saw these Bedouin uh, shepherds, and these shepherds would always lead the sheep from the front. They had certain clothing. They had a staff, and they would call the sheep, and they would lead them from the front. And the tour guy would say, hey, I just want you to know these shepherds, they look a lot like they would in the time of Jesus. This is what they wear. This is how they lead. They're always in front of the sheep. And sure enough, they turned the corner, and there was another group of sheep. But this guy had a whip and a staff and was behind him driving him. And the guy on the tour said, hey, I thought you said the shepherds were always in front. And he goes, oh, sir, I'm sorry, that's not a shepherd. That's the butcher. And I want us to be very, very careful. If you're not following Jesus, you will follow somebody. It might be yourself. It might be someone else. But it leads all to the same spot. Your destruction. Jesus has the words of life, and He invites you to follow Him. He provides for you. He protects for you. He calls you to Himself. He's the good shepherd that lays His life down for the sheep. So be very, very careful who you follow. Then we get to chapter 12. You see the Lord is returning. And then in the last chapter, verse 14, it's the coming day of the Lord. And you see it gets really bad. Zechariah has a day where you have Armageddon. The last battle where all the nations line up and God's people are suffering. And it's looking bad for God's people. And just when you think you lost all hope, guess who shows up? The King of kings and Lord of lords. And he speaks and the battle's over. And he will reign and he will rule forever and ever. <coughs> we see in Zechariah 13, 1, it says, On that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David, meaning God's people and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness, and we will be with the Lord day in and day out. And so that is the book of Zechariah. It is a loaded book. I love how it ends with 49, the Lord will be king over all the earth. The Lord will be king over all the earth. You see this again in Revelation. Revelation eleven fifteen: 15, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord, his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, Jesus is reigning and ruling today, but there is a day coming where every eye will see and every knee will bow. And we wait. They had to wait 500 years from this time for, to see chapter 9 through 14, to see the coming Messiah. We've been waiting for 2,000 years, right? What's the theme of the book? At God's time, the Lord remembers and blesses. We know how this thing ends. Jesus reigning and ruling the world. I want to leave you with two things. Number one, have you been rescued? Have you been rescued? This is, this is chapter 3. This is the gospel message. In your sin, you are dead. You will be separated eternally from God. But the invitation is going out. You can be made new. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
Have you been rescued? And then secondly, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready to get to work? This is our duty, to bring glory to God. This is what we joyfully get to do. This is what our life should be reflecting. So I want us to pair, just like back in this day with Haggai and Zechariah, I want us to, to put these two together. Um, Tracy, I want you to read. Uh, Tracy Pope, I want you to read Haggai. Um, and then I will read Haggai 1.14. I'm sorry, I got it wrong up here. One verse, chapter 1, verse 14. I, I, want you to, I want you to hear these words, right? You, you can see it up here. I want you to hear them. And, and then I'm going to read Zechariah 4.6. All right, go ahead, Tracy. I am with you, declares the Lord, and the Lord stirred. stirred I'm sorry, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheolthel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, of host their God. Good. All right, so what was the work dependent on? What was the work dependent on? What, what happened? God stirred their hearts. We're trying to do something here that only happens if God moves. If God doesn't stir up our hearts, we won't get to work. And if God doesn't stir up people who are far from Him, they won't see the glory of Christ. And so we're desperate on God to do the work to start moving, to stir in the hearts. And so this is one thing I want us to do. I want us to pray that God stirs our hearts so that we get to work. And I love it. He does this for Zerubbabel. He does this for the high priest. He does this for the people. And then they get to work. I want to see something accomplished here in our city that only God gets the credit for. I don't care if anybody remembers Redemption Church. I care eternally if they remember Christ. I want to see His Spirit move in us. And I want to see God open up the eyes of the mind of the unbelievers so that they can see the glory of Christ. Because that's also what Satan is doing. He's accusing us of sin, but he's also keeping people from seeing the glory of Christ. And we want to see the Spirit of God move. And then in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, not by might, not by strength, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Let us reflect our dependence on God's Spirit by how we pray. So number one, have you been rescued? Number two, are you ready? And I'm not asking you to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and work harder. I'm asking you to depend more and only on the Spirit of God. Ask God to fill you with the Spirit and then walk obediently. This is what the Spirit does. He's changing us one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time to look more and more like Jesus. And then who knows what He will accomplish through us. Who knows what mountains might come in our way that God will make flat, but I know this, God can change the city and it's not a big deal. God can change the hardest heart and it's not a big deal. Mountains are flattened before our God. It's not because His people are strong, it's because His Spirit is mighty. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I ask that You rescue people today. Pray that You open up eyes so people can see Your glory, that they turn from their sin. I pray that we find our identity in who you have called us to be in Christ. That we are called the righteousness of you. You clean us from the dirt and the sin and the iniquity in us. So I pray that we walk in grace, not in guilt. Help us think.
correctly on who we are. And then, Lord, I pray that we're ready to work. We're ready to move. We're ready to do what you've called us to, whatever that might be. Not because we're capable, but because we're dependent on your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you fill us with your Spirit. and Help us walk with Him. Lord, you've done this throughout history. We ask that you do that now in us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.